Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Cindy W. at U Belgium Bull and at Might Have a Clue. Scott Melby is on the show today. Scott is CEO, President, and Director of Uranium Royalty Corp., a uranium-focused royalty stream lending company with a portfolio of various staged uranium project royalties. The company also has an equity interest in London-based Yellow Cake PLC, a physical uranium investment vehicle. Uranium Royalty is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol URC and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol URCCF. Scott, thanks for coming on the show. Andrew, it's great to be on, and uh, I know we're overdue. We, we first talked about this when we met down in uh, Adelaide at the Australian Uranium Conference, and so it's a real pleasure to, to be with your listeners and readers today. Yeah, it's been a while, and good to have you on, good to chat. Well, Scott, let's go back for a moment uh, before we get into current events. You've had a long history in the uranium business. Can you give the audience your background, where you've been, some key industry people that you've established relationships with along the way? Well, sure. It's uh, unusual now to look back on my career, which has been 35 years in nuclear energy and uranium mining, uh, brokerage trading, uh, every aspect of the fuel cycle. Uh, but it's uh, it's really been valuable uh, to to have lived through you know all the the challenges and opportunities and ups and downs that uranium market has experienced uh, over that time. You know, my career began in the early days as a, uh, a broker and trader with Newchem out of New York. Uh, a fuel buyer with a utility company uh, with Arizona Public Service at the Palo Verde Nuclear Station in Arizona, which gave some really good perspective on on the buying side of the business. But most of my career has been focused on uranium mining side, and I've had the, the fortunate opportunity to be with uh, three of the four largest uranium mining companies in the world in leadership positions in marketing and sales. Uh, you know, 23 years of that with Cameco, including president of their global marketing subsidiary, uh, Cameco Inc., uh, which brought me all over the world and, and contracting with essentially every nuclear utility around the globe. Um, had an interesting uh, experience with Uranium One, uh, with uh, the uh, the mines in the United States and, and Kazakhstan, and working closely uh, in the United Arab Emirates and, and, and uh, markets into China. And then more recently, uh, served as an advisor uh, to the CEO of Kazatomprom as part of their transformation activities as they were preparing for their IPO. Uh, but uh, over the last uh, five, six years now, it's been with uh, Uranium Energy Corp as an executive with uh, U.S. ISR company uh, based out of Corpus Christi um, and also um, had uh, some involvement with UPC, uh, the, the Denison-managed uh, uranium commodity uh, fund and, and managing uranium activities for them. So certainly have uh, have seen uh, every every angle and every aspect of the uranium uh, industry over these years. But uh, it's really uh, it's an exciting industry that I don't think I would want to uh, have devoted uh, my time to any other industry. It's really uh, it's been an amazing experience. 
Scott, where are we in the uranium market now? We've got broad market forces that seem to be prevailing first, but then we have positive production suspensions coming out of nearly all remaining production centers around the world. Where are we headed? And will the broad market yeah. action govern the response in the uranium sector? Yeah, well, I mean, listen to uh, to your readers and listeners. Uh, we're all aware that uh, uranium has, has probably gone through the toughest, longest uh, bear market of any commodity. Uh, really, you could look at it as a nine-year bear market uh, following the activities of uh, the events of Fukushima. Um, but I think it's more important to think that, you know, really um, the rebalancing and the positive fundamental shift that we've seen in uranium really only occurred in earnest uh, in 2017, because up to that point, we saw uranium production increasing year over year, even in the face of falling uranium prices. And that's kind of due to the, the inefficient nature of the uranium market. It takes a, a, a long time to bring uranium mines into production, uh, but it also, uh, we see a lagging effect to take production offline when prices are falling because of the hedged nature of our industry, very different than, say, copper or gold, where you have real-time impacts on supply and demand from price signals. So it really wasn't until 2017 when, when contracts started to roll off in these portfolios and producers began to cut back production dramatically. It's also interesting to note, too, that in the early stage of this bear market, you know, we were really seeing big impacts to the demand side with the shutdowns in Japan, the slow restarts, the slow phase out of, of German uh, reactors and a reactor construction around the world. Uh, but now as we sit today, um, you know, on the demand side, we're back to the pre-Fukushima levels of nuclear generation and uranium requirements. Uh, the, the world needs between 180 and 190 million pounds of uranium annually. That's going to 200 million in the coming years. So, um, you know, the demand side is robust and strong. The supply side is what really needed to adjust, and producers have really stepped up and cut production to the tune of 40 to 50 million pounds um, over this period annually, over what we were just seeing a few years ago. That condition has also been made even more uh, interesting by the COVID-19 impacts on a number of production centers around the world, the, the biggest, most recent uh, impact being the decision by Cameco and Arano to cut back uh, shut-in production at Cigar Lake. So you have Canada effectively producing no uranium today. Uh, you have Namibia shutting in all their mines, Hussab and other production, Rossing uh, in Namibia. Um, but this is really having an accelerated effect on this rebalancing. We knew the world's uranium uh, industry was producing too much uranium. It was being incentivized by old legacy contracts. As those have fallen off, uh, it was uh, incumbent on production to cut back. That's been happening now in earnest since 2017 at that rate of 40, 50 million pounds a year. Now it's increasing even, even greater due to the coronavirus impact. So um, we have really good reason to be optimistic about where we're at in the uranium cycle today. Uh, I think the last catalyst to hit was the uranium procurement, just as those contracts were rolling off for producers. Utilities were also falling out of their contract coverage. However, instead of jumping back into the 10-year contracts they just got out of, they really were uh, quite content to play the spot market, play the carry trade market, where they were able to lower their, their fuel costs by really taking advantage of cheap supplies in the near term. 
Now we realize that you know strategically, uh, when when the winds shift, uh, they've got to adjust the sails, and um, you know I think we're beginning to see that now. We saw utility procurement pick up in the fourth quarter at the end of the year, and we're continuing to see it now. And I think with with some of these supply uh, threats that we've seen, whether it's uh, COVID um, uh, nineteen or its threats to say uh, supplies from Iran sanctions waivers impacting Russian supplies. I think utilities are beginning to realize now that price is not the only determining factor in putting their supply portfolio together. It might make sense to be diversified. It might make sense to have, as North American utilities have more North American supply and, and just balance their portfolios better. So we really have great reason to be optimistic uh, going into 2020, and, and we're beginning to see that now in the uranium price, which uh, in in the midst of everything going on in the global financial markets, we've seen uranium go from $24 a pound to close to $27.50, a pound today. So it's really performed um, quite well considering everything that's going on around the world. Yes, and I would just say this recent chain of events across the globe have taken the just-in-time inventory model and completely thrown it out the window. And if the utilities think that just-in-time inventory is going to work for them, they're soon going to find out that that's not going to work out as well as they intended. I want to ask you, Scott, how do the uranium equities, how are these going to respond in the event the broad market continues to be the focus? Even though we have positive factors that are occurring in the uranium market, which you could argue that have been occurring for years at this point, do you see that these suspensions will cause uranium to continue to do well and also resulting in the equities doing well while the broad market potentially continues to fall? How do you see the equities coming out of this over this volatile period? You know, let's face it, um, you know, whether it's retail investors or it's institutional investors, there was a lot of fatigue um, uh, from from these investors in the uranium market where the recovery has been so slow and it's taken so long. Um, so I think to some degree, and I know this is true for the institutional investors, they love the space. They love the fundamentals. Their economists tell, tell them that, hey, uranium is probably one of the best positioned commodities in the world today, but they can't afford to be early. And, and they've even made forays in and been too early and backed out. So I think there's a, there's a real sense of show me uh, uh, from, from the institutions. I think they need to see real legs under the market. And I think for them, uh, seeing real movements and sustainable movements in the spot price will cause them to come back in and they'll come back in in a very big way. And uh, your readers all realize that, um, you know, there's not a huge number of, of, of investments that the capital can, can pour into in the uranium industry. Um, you know, all that capital really goes through a limited number of doors. And so you see the, the trading volumes uh, in, in these periods go uh, off the charts. I think we're on the verge of that now where I think, um, you know, the even if coronavirus impacts on production are temporary, I think the rebalancing, even if it, if it helps draw down inventories for a period of two, three months, um, that's very positive in terms of, of accelerating this point to where, um, you know, the inventories are drawn down and we need new mine production. And that's where it gets interesting because even with the existing restart uh, mine production, which we believe Chemical will come back at some point. Husab will come back. Grossing will come back. But 
over and above that, we need new mine production. And we're very rapidly getting into the point where we're in the lead times required to bring on new mines. Uranium is it's very difficult to permit any mine in the world today. You know, add the complexities of a uranium mine, and you're looking at six, seven, eight to 10 years to permit, license, and construct a new mine today. So if we need new mine production in, say, 2025, there's very limited number of projects in the world today that can respond to that. So I kind of look at it, and I guess I would look at it as an investor looking at the equities. Uh, I would also look at it the same way as as the CEO of, of Uranium Royalty Corp. I kind of put companies in two categories in the nearer term. There are companies that can produce and cash flow in this coming cycle. And by that, I mean this cycle that we're in now in 2020 that, that, that's taking off. Um, and let's face it, that's going to be very limited to the mines that are in uh, temporary uh, standby and, and have restart potential or mines that are fully permitted licensed and the decision to go forward is theirs and they have the capital uh, backing to do it. That's limited, but, but there, are, there is a, a group of companies that fit that category. There's another category of uranium companies that may not be producing and cash flowing immediately in this cycle, but their projects are going to really see the ball advance dramatically in, 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 a, in a bull market cycle. And so I think as investors, um, it doesn't mean that you don't take a longer term view on expiration plays or things that are kind of down the road because uh, you know, they will, their value will be unlocked as the bull market un, un, unfolds. But right. I think you, if you really want the biggest pop, you're looking at the companies that can respond quickly. That usually means permitted, licensed, or built and standby operations, um, or those that will really, really advance their uh, uh, corporate plans in, in the next cycle. If the broad market continues to be volatile with fear and there's a need for liquidity, I still see that there could be some potential selling even in light of the continuing, improving, fantastic fundamentals that we have in this sector. But we'll see. Time will tell. Scott, let's change over here for a moment. Can you just speak to your relationships with people in the sector? Who do you pay attention to and why are they important to you? Well, I think, you know, one of the benefits of, of being in the industry all these years, and I think really valuing relationships, um, whether it's on the utility side or, or the producer side is the ability to really uh, draw from from various corners of the industry. Um, you know, it's nice to be able to have relationships with the Chinese uh, utilities or U.S. Uh, nuclear fuel buyers uh, or, or those in, in Europe or elsewhere. And so uh, it's always important to uh, to gauge, uh, you know, where they're thinking at the end of the day, they're the, you know, they're the customers of the ultimate buyers. So, I pay a, a great deal of attention to what they're doing and uh, what trends I'm seeing there. Uh, and, uh, you know, also, you know, uh, just a, a lifetime of experiences with, uh, you know, having worked with the Russians at, at Rosatom and Uranium One and the great, you know, enormous growth that, that, you know, that they're experiencing in reactor construction around the world or in Kazakhstan where they, they lead production today. Uh, it's really invaluable to have those kind of relationships uh, certainly, uh, you know, the, uh, the folks at Cameco are going through very difficult, challenging times, but making really, you know, big strategic decisions right now. Um, you know, it's just important to, to stay plugged in to all of them and, uh, um, and you know, uh, always be humble enough to realize that you don't always have the, uh, 
all the answers, uh, and uh, it's good to have a network of folks that uh, that you're drawing on for information and views. Well, very well. Scott, I got just a, two more questions before we get into Uranium Royalty Corp. Just looking back over this bear market, what do you think has been the biggest problem for the sector, Scott? Is it really the prolonged low uranium price environment, or was the bigger issue at hand maybe potentially misdirection and mishandling by management teams that had also contributed to the damage equal to or more than the low price environment? What do you see there as really the big driver? I mean, we obviously know that Fukushima was part of that, but then oversupply was was coming into that before Fukushima. Do you see that management potentially has gotten smarter this next cycle? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to blame the market. It's an inanimate object and, and the market is the market. And uh, events, you know, life is life. You have Fukushima's, you have COVID-19, things happen. So you can't really blame that, but but you do have to look at how companies react to markets and, and decisions that are made. And I, and I don't want to be too hard on producers either. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, from 2011 to 2016, uranium was consistently falling from $70 a pound down to $17 a pound, yet production increased year over year. Now, um, again, I think the reasons for that are this inefficient nature of the uranium market where, um, you know, producers did have baseload contracts, legacy contracts that they could produce into for profit. So, you know, it's hard to blame them for, you know, producing and getting into production at that time. Now, I think this inefficient nature of, of the uranium market works to the investors' benefit going forward because in an undersupplied market, you know, the supplies are not that readily available to, to respond to, to higher prices. So, um, again, I think, you know, I think the easy answer is we, we were producing too much uranium and causing an oversupplied market. And it really wasn't until 2017 that that started to be uh, corrected in a big way. And now we're seeing, um, you know, that rebalancing really accelerate. So I think that's really the, the, the crux of it because the demand is, is fine. I mean, we're seeing you know, pre-Fukushima levels of nuclear generation, the reactor construction is robust around the world. We're now beginning to see SMR reactors, which will be um, ideal additions to the demand side in markets where they've got to compete with a heavy, um, you know, uh, renewable dominated markets that can be more load following and that may be with cheap gas like we have in the United States. So uh, I think, you know, really the, the supply side is what needed to be adjusted and we're now seeing that happening in a big way. Yes. Thoughts on the conversion and enrichment markets, and then also your thoughts on this nuclear fuel working group outcome. Yeah. Um, you know, we obviously as uranium producers, we focus so much on, uh, on, on the uranium side and uranium mine development, but, uh, you know, conversion has always been, you know, it's the, it's the, the least costly LM, you know, uh, component of the fuel cycle, yet everything flows through you know, these three, um, you know, major conversion facilities uh, around the world and uh, what happens there has, has a big impact. Um, you know, enrichment uh, has been an oversupply, you know, really driven, you know, enrichment prices from over $100 a SWU down to, you know, $30, $40 a SWU. Um, you know, that, that has impact too. That's caused underfeeding and that's, you know, the underfeeding of, of enrichers around the world has been the equivalent of an enormous MacArthur or Cigar Lake size mine. Good news is, 
that's probably the peak uh, contribution from that source of supply, and we'll begin to see less going forward rather than more. But uh, uranium investors do need to fully understand the impacts of uh, of the other uh, segments of the fuel cycle because they do uh, they do have uh, an impact on what's happening right now. I mean, even if if you lost a major uh, fabrication plant or enrichment plant or conversion plant due to coronavirus uh, uh, issues, that may mean that alternate supplies need to be sourced and EUP and, and fuel uh, assemblies need to be put together on, on short notice. Well, that can cause completely unpredicted, unpredictable demand on, on the uranium market. So uh, it, it's always wise to, to look at, uh, at the other elements of the fuel cycle. Uh, nuclear fuel working group um you know it's unfortunate because the uh the president uh, following the decision not to move forward with tariffs or quotas as part of the 232 investigation um you know instituted this task force of cabinet level officials and agencies to really look at ways to revitalize the uranium industry and, and i've always been in the opinion that this working group has the potential to have a more lasting impact on the industry going forward than say even you know uh, a tariff or quota might have a more immediate impact on the industry but i think a more lasting solution can come out of these working group uh, conclusions and policies unfortunately <clears throat> as we sit today the uh, the working group uh, uh, policy recommendations sit on larry kudlow's desk today and understandably there's other priorities in the white house that are going to take you know they're going to take priority uh, any anything related to coronavirus that's job one right now now while that may have pushed off the release of the working group uh, recommendations uh, another story has kind of emerged and it, it's really been highlighted by uh, the coronavirus is that you know it highlights our over reliance on foreign countries some of them not necessarily even good friends of ours for strategic things like in coronavirus, we've seen pharmaceuticals, masks, gloves, things like this. But we've also seen during this time the uh, sort of the oil uh, price war between the Saudis and the Russians impact our oil and gas industry in the United States. We've seen the Chinese essentially take over the rare earth metals and critical minerals um, uh, uh, supplies for the United States, and we've seen Obviously, um, state-owned companies in the uranium industry really impact um, a vital and a healthy uranium industry. I think the potential for all of these to be wrapped together and dealt with by the administration is very high right now. Uh, I know oil and gas didn't get dealt with in the last stimulus bill that passed, but we do know that these are high priorities and, and evidenced by Secretary Pompeo at the, at the State Department uh, in a speech last week, not only highlighted the oil and gas vulnerabilities and critical minerals, but named uranium and the nuclear fuel cycle specifically as something that's vulnerable and needs to be corrected. So um, I think we have to be patient. Uh, the president has a lot of priorities. Uh, the first is just uh, really addressing the, um, you know, the medical issues around uh, coronavirus. But I think uh, very shortly uh, and forthcoming will be policies that really uh, advance the ball. Listen, the $150 million uranium reserve is a good start. If it's a 10-year program and it can be administered in a way that gives a kickstart to, uh, to revitalize the domestic production, uh, that's great. But I think there's other things. The Secretary of Energy has promised that the, the, the policies will have be more than just that. So 
um, I think we just have to be patient that uh, that the you know and realize that the administration prioritizes this. It's just going to take more time. Yes, I did respond to the RFI request from the Department of Energy Office of Nuclear, and we expressed that in our letter that there's a bigger problem at hand. It's not the small uranium sector. It's mm. it's a much larger problem, and it has to do with strategic policy to be a leader in nuclear power, not just in the United States, but globally, to compete with the Russians, to compete with the Chinese, to compete with people who are going around and selling turnkey packages to other countries to deploy nuclear energy. The US needs to lead in that, and that's what we expressed in our letter. And as a result of significant programs and strategic policies put in place to enact that strategy of gaining market share in the global nuclear power sector, that will indirectly lead down the complete supply chain of more uranium, more conversion, more enrichment, a healthy environment for the entire industry. So we express that pretty hard in our letter in response to their RFI, which of course their RFI was focused just on small domestic stuff, but they didn't understand that there's a bigger problem at stake. We brought that forward, whether or not they'll do anything, I don't know, but if they're willing to spend, if you include the Fed, five, six trillion dollars in stimulus, which is really what it is, even though they say it's two, uh, for COVID-19, you would expect that spending half a trillion dollars to get into nuclear power global market to compete with the Russians and the Chinese, Scott, that would indirectly come back and support a domestic economy for nuclear um, like no other could, in my opinion. So we, we made that clear in our letter, but uh, they'll probably just laugh at us and wonder what thing we're smoking and what planet we're living on. But uh, <laughs> no, you may, you make really good points. And that, that is so true. Um, you know, it's not only about American energy security. I mean, 20% of our electricity is from nuclear and having almost a complete re reliance on foreign supplies, many of it from state-owned entities. Um, that's not good policy. Uh, we didn't find it acceptable back when uh, we were losing control over oil and gas supplies back in the day. Um, but it's also about American leadership in, in a geopolitical sense around the world. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, China, Russia use nuclear energy and turnkey projects all over the world as a way to really entrench themselves in South America, Africa, Europe, the Middle East. And so, uh, you know, the U.S. has to decide whether uh, we want to lead or, or be left behind. And from the 40s, probably arguably through the 90s, the U.S. was the global nuclear leader. Where did Japan get their capabilities? Where did Japan get their big fleet of nuclear reactors? Well, it was led by the U.S., but certainly they've got some bigger issues at hand that would certainly fix um, some of these smaller issues that have been brought up. But I, I don't know that they have the stomach to step out with that type of aggression and ambition to regain that market share, but we'll see what happens. They're saying the right things, but let's see if they, they execute, but uh, we're, we're optimistic. Yes, absolutely. Okay, let's talk about uranium royalty. First off, uh, I want to just talk more about the, the assets and so forth in a moment, Scott. But first, can you start us off looking at the capital structure, the cash on hand, and the key backers on the share roster? Yes, the company has been around for three years now. It was founded by kind of the key foundational uh, shareholders, folks like Marin Katusa, Rick Rule, uh, Amir Adnani, and myself, uh, Warren Gilman, Darren Milmeister at Extract Capital. I think back three years ago and, and, and before that, we kind of looked at the incredible uh, success that uh, royalty 
and streaming companies had had in base and precious metals. And these are companies like Franco Nevada, Royal Gold, Wheat and Precious, Sandstorm. They've emerged into a $40 billion industry and they've become a very popular way for investors to have diversified exposure into these commodities. But they've also uh, provided a very valuable uh, form of alternative finance to support mine development in, in these industries. So we founded the company, uh, took it uh, public in December of last year, where we uh, we raised $30 million on oversubscribed IPO on, uh, on the TSX. It's amazing, but we were the largest mining IPO in Canada last year, perhaps maybe in the last two or three years. Uh, but it uh, really got a strong uh, reception. Uh, our timing was obviously good. We couldn't foresee what was happening in global uh, financial markets. But as we sit today, we're in a very good position with uh, uh, you know, $40 million in cash and, and marketable securities that um, really put us in a, in a great position to, to grow the company. And you know, we've launched with, a, with a, a portfolio that we're quite proud of, and it's a very respectable portfolio. But the real focus of this company, it's a, it's a growth company, and that's what we've seen. And, and we've taken the best practices and, you know, from these companies and other, uh, other commodities and applied it to uranium royalties. So you know, where we're really going to, uh, uh, you know, we're going to see growth and, and, and building on that portfolio every year. This company is going to get bigger and bigger and have a more broader diversified um, uh, portfolio. So as we sit today, uh, we're, we're very well funded. Um, the intention be, and certainly the, the pipeline for potential royalties and streams is great. Um, you, know, you can only imagine how difficult it is for uranium producers today to know that their production is needed in the coming years, but the capital markets and, and uranium markets just haven't been incentivizing that investment. So, you know, you're really faced with, do you advance your project through debt, which is may not even be uh, an option, or equity, which results in further dilution of, of existing shareholders. So you look at, at royalties and streams, it's perhaps one of the best financing alternatives for uranium uh, mine developers um, uh, in in the market today. So we have a very robust pipeline in front of us. I will say that you know we we aggressively want to grow the company. We don't want to just do deals though, just for the sake of of putting uh, you know deals up on the scoreboard. We want to do accretive deals, smart deals. We want to do our homework on due diligence on on geology, mining, engineering, management. Uh, Versus, uh, and finance is to ensure that out of the universe of companies that are out there that have the potential to fill this gap in the coming years, we're aligning our capital with the, the ones that we think have the, the most promise. Um, you know, the whole financial market turmoil has caused us to be more cautious than I thought we would be going into the year because we really, as a, as a capital provider, we have to ask the question, what is the true cost of capital today for a uranium mine developer? Uh, has it changed dramatically? Is it, is, it, is it fundamentally changed going forward? Or are we in a temporary situation? But that is causing us to be a little more careful, um, you know, under normal ideal situation until we get to be self-sustaining by our own cash flows. The model is uh, go out, acquire royalties and streams and, and raise capital to fund this growth in these early years. Well, once we deplete and deploy our 
cash position today, we're going to have to go back to these same difficult markets. So, um, you know, we're being a little more cautious than I thought we would be going into the year. But uh, I can tell you our our due diligence teams and, and uh, technical teams uh, couldn't be more busy uh, pursuing opportunities and looking at, at projects around the world. So we um, uh, we have 72 million shares outstanding, plus the uh, 27.9 million warrants that were part of the IPO offering. Uh, the IPO was priced at a dollar 50 per unit, which gave uh, gave you a, a common share and a full warrant, uh, five year expiration at two dollars a share. Um, when we launched that, uh, uh, the market kind of priced those two components at a buck 25 for the share and 25 cents for the for the warrant. Um, the proceeds from that, uh, 30 million. Uh, that went to close conditional royalties that we had um, uh, on an optional basis that were to close on on IPO. It also allowed us to pay down the bridge financing that allowed us to acquire uh, foundational shareholding in Yellowcake when they went public um, um, on the on the London Exchange. So it leaves us today with 40 million in cash and. Uh, cash equivalents or, or marketable securities uh, and no debt. Um, 72 million shares at the market cap today of around 65 million. Um, again, it puts us uh, in, a, in a really strong balance sheet position. Um, so we're, you know, really looking at, uh, you know, where are the best, absolute best uh, counterparties that we can, can put into the portfolio with an eye to near term um, you know, cash flowing assets. And I realize in the uranium market, it's not a universe like you see in copper or gold where, you know, there are opportunities to do a stream with a copper producer who's going to be in production, you know, 18, 24 months from now. And it's pretty certain. And there's not a lot of uh, uncertainty that that isn't going to come into production. Uranium is different and nobody understands the, 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 the risk and the opportunities of uranium more than we do. Uh, we realize the permitting risks and production risks, uh, market risks. But uh, as I said earlier, we're putting a priority right now on our corporate development activities on those projects that can be producing and cash flowing in the next cycle or really see their company advance their business plans dramatically in this next cycle. So that's the focus. Um, and uh, you know, it's going to be an exciting year. And Scott, can you speak just briefly about the key people at the company? Who do you want to highlight? You know, one of the attractions of a royalty and streaming company, if you look at the, our role models in base and precious metals, these are some of the most profitable companies per headcount of, of any industries in, 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 uh, in the world today. The reason being is we don't own the mines. We don't operate the mines. We have financial interests either financial through royalties or physical through streams of a physical commodity from these projects. And so these are typically companies with very low GNA and very uh, small headcount. Um, so we're no exception to that. Uh, but the people that we have assembled are really quality people that understand capital markets and uranium uh, businesses as well as anyone. Um, the board of directors today, um, in addition to myself, we have Amir Adnani, who serves as chairman, uh, obviously brings his entrepreneurial energy to it, but he pretty much leaves the day-to-day -day, uh, to the management team, but really provides valuable uh, guidance and, and counsel. 
Uh, Lady Barbara Judge is someone we, it's incredible to have her. She was the first female um, board mem- uh, uh, member of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission uh, as a commissioner. She serves on the advisory boards of Emirates Nuclear Energy, Tokyo Electric Power. She helped found the Astana Stock Exchange in Kazakhstan and was on the, uh, was a chair and board member of the U.K. Atomic Energy Commission. So she gets the big picture in nuclear energy and, and has a, a world of relationships and perspectives to, to add. Dave Newberger is someone that uh, I was really excited to bring to the company in a board role. Dave was VP of Mining for Cameco. He was there through all the construction and, and operation of, of the world's richest, highest-grade mines in Saskatchewan and Cameco's global activities. He's a, a wonderful sounding board from a mining engineering and operational perspective when we're looking at investing in various companies. And then Veena Patel, who is uh, just a real pro in terms of capital markets in, uh, in Europe and around the world. So that's our board of directors. On the management team, it's a very small group where uh, we have myself bringing all my years of experience. Darcy Hurstcorn uh, is a 20-year veteran of Cameco Global Exploration and is our uh, chief technical officer that leads uh, the due diligence, which is so important in what we do and in, in, in fully understanding these projects, the resource base and the ability to mine from them. And then on the finance corporate development side, Josephine Mann uh, is our CFO uh, out, of, out of Vancouver and uh, Bruce Nicholson, who uh, provides uh, incredible support in terms of financial modeling and, and making sure we're putting the right value when we make an offer on a royalty or stream that we're valuing that properly from a financial perspective. So that's a very small team, but it's a very, uh, very uh, talented team. Um, you know, in, in terms of, of GNA, this is a company that, you know, shouldn't require, you know, we could double, triple in size and not really have to grow that much dramatically from where we are today. Uh, in the prospectus, I think we, we targeted uh, annual GNA of about 1.4 million Canadian per year. Um, given the difficult uh, conditions in the markets, we've cut that back to a million a year, not a month, a year to fund this company. And uh, we're even obviously, like most companies, stay looking at ways to even reduce that even further. But uh, anyway, it's a very lean uh, company and we intend to keep it that way. And Scott, can you speak to where you own your shares as far as cost basis and how does management plan to align themselves with that of the shareholders who bought into the IPO and going forward? Sure. Well, I mean, if you look at, um, you know, if you look at the insider ownership, the foundational ownership, you have kind of the big corporate ownership, which is, you know, the UEC Mega Altius, which vended in uh, royalties and share in exchange for shares. Uh, guys like Marin Caduce, Rick Rule, who are you know in this for the long haul. Amir, um, I think, was one of the largest uh, individual uh, checks written in in the IPO. So, um, you know, we we have a lot of skin in the game here, and and I would say to date, all the shares that we own are shares that we we bought, we purchased. Um, I have about 475,000 shares. Uh, I've been uh, acquired, obviously, on the Foundation wrote one of the first checks that I've bought at each at each each stage, including the IPO, um, to really in, increase my stake. Um, in terms of incentive compensation, uh, that's something obviously we want to. Uh, you know, our, our management team is is taking very 
minimal salaries to get this thing off the ground because we believe in it and we see the growth and we want to see our investment be successful, you know, we will put in place an incentive plan for the board and, and management that, that aligns them to the shareholders. But I think we're, our view is first things first, let's, let's get off the ground. Let's get some initial deals in place. Let's get some cash flow established and then let's let's focus on on compensation issues and i know that's not a very common view amongst uh, public companies today but it's it's something uh, we're doing we believe in the company the concept and we're vested to our own personal investments and you know we will follow on with those sort of incentive plans once we kind of get up and and, and get our feet uh, on the ground okay and would you say that you guys have a cost basis that's around the current share price above or below can you speak to that i wouldn't be able to tell you what the what that average is but like i said we uh, when we founded the company uh you know back in uh, in 2017 um you know we wrote the initial checks literally just to get the company off the ground and raised uh you know under three million dollars back in 2017 really just to get a ceo hired get letterhead and, and get going um the dollar round was um, a big funding round where about uh 15 million shares were issued uh at, at that time at, at a dollar a lot of the insiders and foundational shareholders were, were in on that and then on on the dollar 50 round i can say as well that um you know a lot of us were were in on 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 that round so we kind of represent the whole uh spectrum of of where we're at but uh uh, I think you have very patient hands too, and that you know, in in these insider or foundational shareholders, there's either explicit hold periods or or voluntary hold periods. But that could be you know, 50% or more of the company is is held by very long-term uh, oriented shareholders. So uh, that should give comfort that um, you know we're in it for the long haul. And again, I think it's totally reasonable to view this as being a billion-dollar company. Uh, if we follow the same growth trajectory as as these other companies in base and precious metals have taken and and we execute on the growth plans that that we have in place and we see that it is possible uh this is going to be a very big company in the coming years how how quickly that happens is 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 how well we execute on the plan well scott let's move on let's talk about just just highlight for us and i want to get into a couple of them can you talk a little bit about the key royalty assets that you guys have and of course uh, any equity interests that you want to mention sure so um the biggest holding we have is is the uh holding that we have in uh yellow cake plc out of london um maybe some explanation of why why physical um which i think is is a reasonable question I think it's safe to say we're never going to be too too much physical in terms of our investments, but we found that you know given the stage uh, in the uranium cycle that we're in uh, and where uranium prices uh, have been, an investment in physical uh, our 7.6 million shares of of yellow cake, just under nine percent of that company that we bought in the initial offering of yellow cake effectively gave us. Um, ownership in 20 $21 uranium. Um, I can tell you knowing what it takes to discover, produce, uh, and, and, and sell a drum of yellow cake uh, to be able to buy it at, you know, effectively in the holdings of yellow cake at $20 a pound is a great investment. And that also gives exposure to our early shareholders 
that they'll get the capital appreciation. We've already seen that a yellow cake, I think has been up about 18% over the last uh, week or so, but they'll realize the capital appreciation, the value of that investment in these early years before we start getting steady state cash flowing royalties and streams coming in. So that's kind of the reason, but it also uh, presented some strategic cooperation uh, with Yellowcake in terms of royalties and streams that they may come aware of or ability to participate with them on those. And also it allows us to purchase up to $31 million US of uranium from Kazatomprom under their billion dollar supply agreement. So it's a very strategic investment. It's one that we're, we're quite pleased to, to be in and, and to date is, is our largest single shareholding. Um, then in terms of the existing portfolio, you can kind of put it in, in various buckets. Um, we have the U.S. ISR assets that uh, um, we have holdings in Reno Creek, Dewey Burdock, Lance, Church Rock. I mean, admittedly, these are very small holdings. Some of them came out of uh, acquisitions, uh, for example, um, uh, Dewey Burdock, Lance, and Church Rock were part of an acquisition from Westwater which was about $3 million um, investment, $2 million of which was a receivable, which uh, was paid uh, to us um, uh, just uh, earlier this year. So um, really the, the price of acquiring the Dewey Burdock Lance and Church Rock um, royalties was, was you know, less than a million dollars. So um, we love the projects. They're just very small. Reno Creek, it's a small net profit interest. Um, but we believe Reno Creek and, and like we believe generally well-run ISR projects in the United States with good assets and good operations, good management can be some of the first early movers with or without U.S. government assistance. I mean, I think it's important to note that a, a well-run ISR mine can be in the lower half of cost quartile globally. So we want to be exposed there. I mean, I think on all of these, we love the projects they are just very small uh, interest to date. Um, we have interest in U.S. conventional, which is admittedly, you know, that's higher cost production whose value will be crystallized in the coming bull market, but won't be some of the earliest fast movers, you know, with the exception of perhaps some of the, the higher grade conventional uh, deposits on the Colorado plateau. I mean, they may be higher cost than uh, ISR in the U.S., but they have huge strategic value. And I think is part of the whole revitalization of um of the U.S. uranium industry, we'll see, um, you know, uh, that four corners area of the, of the U.S. be a, an area where there is is growth. In Canada, in the Athabasca Basin, we were very pleased to acquire just under 2% net smelter return uh, NSR royalty on the Rough Rider project. Now, again, this is not something that's going to be producing in, in the coming cycle, but has enormous strategic value. Um, you know, this was a project that was the object of a bidding war between Rio Tinto and Cameco. Rio Tinto ultimately prevailing and, and acquiring this for $600 million. Um, we, uh, it's a very interesting deal. We went not to Rio Tinto, but to the underlying royalty owners, um, you know, 40 or 50 of, of these royalty owners, uh, and individually going to them and, and acquiring their royalties, either offering them either cash or shares. And I think it came out to about half cash, half shares to acquire this just under 2% NSR interest in Rough Riders. So a uh, little bit longer term, but huge value, a lot of pounds in, uh, in, a, in, a, in the right part of the world, I think, as 
this generation of current mines in Saskatchewan depletes, Rough Rider is going to be one of the first uh, uh, movers uh, as well. Langer Heinrich is an interesting one for us. We think it can be an early mover. Um, it's a fixed royalty per, uh, per kilogram or per pound. But what we like about Langer is it's a restart project, and they've gone through a very extensive cost and efficiency exercise to, to reduce the production cost in a restart. They have a couple of restart scenarios that they believe uh, they can be very competitive in a $40 to $50 market, which we think is very reasonable to assume in the coming years. Um, we like Langer. It's been uh, a proven producer. It's produced many, uh, several million pounds, um, you know, per year for, for a number of years. Uh, we think the restart there is quite attractive. Uh, Michelin is something which is a longer term play. It's a 2% uh, GRR on, on Michelin, which in the last cycle was a very significant deposit, which was uh, is owned by uh, EDF interests and, and the Chinese. But uh, again, was a, an all-share deal with Altius, who were quite intent to take shares in URC, given that they're in the royalty, the broader royalty business. They like uh, the model, and they're quite content to have an investment in, in URC. So, again, I think we're quite, um, you know, we're proud of, of the inaugural portfolio. But I wouldn't, I mean, obviously, you can go into and, and put your own values on these and make your own assumptions in terms of when they'll produce and cash flow. Um, but I think the real value, you know, we're going to build on this portfolio. And I'd say the, the portfolio, um, you know, every year, you know, we'll just continue to grow. And it's really the projects that we're looking to, to add that will have perhaps add to the near-term cash flow potential that will really be exciting in the coming months. And Scott, I want to go back to Rough Rider for just a moment. Um, the NSR that you guys have there, can you just share a little bit more with us about what you guys see as a net asset value for that asset? When do you see it come into production? Do you see it happening this decade? You know, we don't, uh, on, on the project side, we don't get into granular detail on, on what we value those. It's, it's kind of, it's part of our, our, our competitive um, position. But what I would encourage everyone to do is, is take, um, you know, uh, the information that's in the public uh, domain to kind of put your own assumptions on that. I will say that, that we tend to use, um, you know, a $50 uranium price would be a, a reasonable, and you know, some might say, well, you know, that's higher than today's spot, but there won't be a viable uranium industry if prices aren't in the 40 to $50 a pound, or, you know, frankly, higher than that. So um, we kind of use that, that valuation. Um, we, would, uh, we would plug in assumptions in terms of, of development times. I will tell you, we're, quite conservative and and um and and you know how we see this coming on i think that would be true with all of our assumptions on projects and i know sometimes it's uh it's a challenging uh, position that we're in because when we're in a in a negotiation on a new royalty and stream with a counterparty um you know every management team loves their baby it's the most beautiful baby that was ever born and we may think it's a beautiful baby too but we may actually say okay we have some. We have people on our. We have three former Cameco employees on on our on our uh, management and board that went through you know a 10-year development timeline for MacArthur River. Um, you know we've gone through the technical challenges of mining in the basin, and so you know I will say that we tend to be pretty conservative uh, when we lay out uh, you know capital and, and invest in a in a, in a project. So. 
I think with each one of these, I think it's fair to put your own uh, layer on your own um, assumptions of, of how quickly uh, that can come on. But I can tell you, um, you know, we're, we're probably more uh, conservative than, than most just because we've, you know, we've been there and we've gone through development of, of, of mines and, and know what it takes. Yes, and I, I want to ask you a little bit more about which asset that you see will be first cash flow for the company, Scott, maybe such as a restart asset. What do you see there as potentials to be kind of first off the ground? And then also, yeah. it's going to be tough to determine at this point, but do you see that happening sometime in the next two to three years? I mean, when do you, when do you see the company will actually start to see some cash flow come in? Yeah, so um, I mean, obviously not cash flow, but but yellow cake will have the most immediate. I mean, we're seeing benefits um, occurring as we speak. Um, we did get a two million dollar payment cash flow in from the Westwater portfolio earlier this year. So there are there is some cash and early benefits when, when, before we get to a steady uh, state. But I think you have to look at USISR uh, in the portfolio probably. Um, is, is uh, you know, I would consider near-term and, and this cycle type projects. Uh, and Langer Heinrich, I think we're quite uh, optimistic that uh, with recovery in prices, uh, we see, you know, that going back in production. And um, again, I, I, I would say that a number of the projects that we're looking at in the pipeline today can be, you know, the, the earliest, if not the earliest cash flowing, depending on uh, you know, I, I can't predict the success of the various uh, discussions that we're in or those in the pipeline that, that we intend to to, uh, uh, to go after this year. But a number of those, you know, could be providing cash flow as early as this year, next year, certainly, you know, in the next uh, year to three years. Um, and remember, our G&A burn for a company this size, it may only be a deal or two. Um, uh, you know, in this market that that allows us to cover our GNA and then be able to move forward, you know, go forward from there where everything built on top of that begins to, to we begin to get ahead of the game. So again, I, I know it's difficult in uranium. We don't want a lot of new mines incentivized too early, but we do really recognize that, you know, in the coming five years, new mines need to come on and, and there aren't a lot of incentives for those mines to come on. So we're kind of playing that fine line, but uh, we recognize that investors want, they want uh, visibility to near-term uh, cash flowing assets. So uh, stay tuned. Um, we're obviously focused on that in our corporate development activities in 2020. Okay. And Scott, when do you see, as far as your guys' current cash situation, let's say you don't have a steady state flow until, let's say, two years from now. Do you guys have sufficient capital at this point to not do any further equity financings to sustain both deals, G&A, and also enough cash runway to to last out another two years before you potentially see some kind of cash flow steady state coming in? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the that's the advantage of, of uh, being a royalty and streaming company over being a, a, a minor developer is we just don't have the, you know, to have mines in standby or in development is a really big, uh, you know, draw on, on resources. But at less than a million dollars a year to fund the, the, the company, including uh, regulatory requirements, minimal office space, we have a, uh, uh, a decentralized office structure uh, and, and salaries, which are at, I would say, way below uh, benchmark levels at this stage, understandably. 
um, you know, uh, with 40 million in cash and marketable securities today, you know, we're in, we're in good shape. But um, again, we're, uh, um, the focus is on, on bringing in deals that uh, begin to, to cover our, our GNA. Um, won't take a, a lot of deals at that rate uh, to cover that. And, uh, but uh, yeah, the, the runway for a company our size, we're in an enviable position. I'll also say that, uh, you know, uh, as a uranium, lifelong uranium guy, I've been, you know, rooting for the uranium price to recover uh, my whole career, uh, you know, and, and ideally would have liked to have seen that yesterday by now. But in a royalty and streaming company, it's not the end of the world. Um, you know, if this drags out longer, although I don't think that's going to be the case anymore, just, uh, you know, the more we're needed in a, in a financing, alternative financing provider, we become more attractive, you know, the longer this market drags on. And so, uh, uh, again, we want the uranium price to recover as quickly as everyone else. But even if it, it drags on longer, it's not the end of the world. Our cash burn is, is minimal and, uh, you know, puts us in a good position to, to do accretive deals. And going forward, what types of deals will the company be looking to make, Scott? Does the focus remain on royalties, offtake, financings, streams, equity purchases? What are you looking to do here? So it's really, uh, you know, those two sort of categories, uh, you know, the, the companies that can cash flow and stream in the next cycle, that's a restart or fully permitted licensed projects. Um, we're quite content to take Royalty, cash royalty from production or physical streams. We have an account at Cameco, so we can take physical uh, uranium in. We can hold it. We can sell it forward. We, you know, you, you know, receiving uranium and being able to to create a you know added value from that that physical uranium is not something that's foreign to me, having been in in my roles through the last 35 years. So we're quite content to do either. So, you know, it's really uh, uh, either or royalties or streams and looking at those projects who really see the needle moving in this coming cycle. It doesn't mean that there isn't a, a market for longer term, call them tuck away royalties. Um, it's, I think every successful royalty company has those. You can have a tuck away royalty that you can acquire quite cheaply. You, you set it aside, tuck it away, and then, you know, 10 years from now, you know, that can be, you know, Rough Rider is a great example. It's not going to be cash flowing tomorrow, but there will be a point where that can be a very significant uh, cash flow provider to the company going forward. But we realize the focus of investors uh, now is, is uh, they want to see near term projects and that's where our attention is. And Scott, what can investors expect as far as news coming during 2020? You know, we're already a quarter in here. Does the company expect to have more deals announced this year? Yeah, I mean, clearly, um, you know, I think I think only by virtue of, of what's happened to financial markets, I would have expected that we would have deals to announce already this early in, in 2020. I think it has caused us to kind of go a little bit slower, more cautiously on some of these deals. But uh, we clearly, this is a growth growth vehicle. It's not, we're not, we're not launching on, you know, the value of our existing portfolio and that's it. That's the end of the story. No, the story is, is the deals that we put into the portfolio going forward. So um, I can tell you our, our, uh, our management team is very actively pursuing a number of uh, opportunities and leads as, as we speak. And, uh, you know, uh, hope to have very good news, you know, over the course of the year and, and that will be a regular 
you know, as you look at this company year over year, uh, you know, the portfolio will grow. I, you know, I look at companies like Sandstorm or Royal Gold or Franco, and, and you look at the almost catalog of projects that they have having been in business 10, 15 years. And it's exciting to think of, you know, when we get to that stage where um, you've really got a diversified uh, investment in various projects in Africa, Australia, uh, North America, all around the world, ISR, conventional, um, various stages of development. I mean, that's that's the vision that, that we want to get to. And obviously, we want to get there as quickly as we can, but we want to do it smartly. I mean, we have to be very, uh, um, we have to be disciplined in terms of, of those investments. It's, it's great to be able to announce deals, but we want those deals to kind of stand the, the bright light of scrutiny and say, yeah, that's, that's a creative, that's a good move. Right. And, and do you think that right now, given where we are in this low level of the market, is there some motivation at management at this point to say, hey, we need to see if we can find a few more cheap deals before this market gets going? Is that also in the back of your mind? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, we have to be, we have to determine what the true cost of capital is before we offer financing to developers. But we also recognize that this is a real fertile market for us to be operating in. Um, you know, we've seen some of the recent equity financings in the uranium space have, have resulted in, you know, very big discounts uh, to the share price and, and dilution. Um, you know, we want to be able to provide an alternative to those developers and, and, and producers and say, hey, we're the best financing alternative for them, not, not you know, that's better than debt or, or equity. And we have that. We have that ability right now. So uh, we clearly are uh, very focused on, on uh, new deals and uh, all things considered with the, with the financial markets where they are today. But, uh, but yeah, we're very, very focused on adding those deals while the getting's good. And Scott, speak to the yellow cake investment for a moment. Is this a long-term holding for the company or in the event that the company needs cash for deals, will it consider liquidation instead of equity financings to raise capital? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a liquid asset, so it is uh, available. I think we we like the yellow cake investment. We like being able to own $20 uranium already now in a in a 27 $28 market, we own $20 uranium. That's that's a good that's a good investment, uh, only to get better. So I don't think there's any rush whatsoever to monetize that. It's a good investment at, at the right time, but it it does you know does present you know a strong balance sheet for us, and it's there if it's needed. But uh, there's no plans to divest of that. Well, speak to the long-term strategy for the company, Scott. Now, we know that there are other highly successful royalty companies over in the precious and base metals space, which you've mentioned some of them. They've been reluctant to even look at uranium. Do you yeah. see that this is going to change? And what is the end game strategy for URC as we continue along in this uranium market? Yeah, I mean, we, we recognize we have a first mover advantage. Um, you know, it's amazing that uh, it hasn't happened sooner. So, I mean, we can't assume that we'll be without competition forever. But I do think that, you know, the more diversified or the, the base and precious metals royalties company, royalty companies, they look at uranium and uh, they look at it, you know, in regards to what they can do in, in say, gold or copper, zinc or other, other commodities. Um, we get 
uranium. We get the challenges, but we also get the opportunities that are presented by uranium investments. Uh, we understand that risk. And what's more important is, you know, people that invest in URC understand and, and, and want that risk return exposure. And so, um, again, it doesn't mean that we take reckless risk in, in investing in projects in the uranium space, but, you know, we're perhaps better suited to take on that risk than, say, a, uh, a gold royalty company. So we do have an advantage in that regard, but, um, you know, we, we have to recognize that, uh, you know, this is going to be a very successful model and, uh, you know, we, we do have that first mover advantage today. It may not be there forever, uh, but we've got to just, uh, you know, hit the ground running in 2020. Uh, longer term, you know, we see, uh, again, I, you know, there's no reason why this can't be a billion dollar company. Uh, how quickly really depends on how well we execute and, and we really emulate some of these successful models in, in other commodities. So, um, it's very exciting. I think the timing of the launch couldn't have been better. Uh, where we are in the uranium cycle couldn't be better. I mean, coming off of a nine-year bear market with strong, robust demand for uranium and, and nuclear energy and the need for new mines really sets up, I mean, you know, for ISR developers, okay, they may only have limited smaller capital requirements to, to get them into production. Well, we're ideally suited to address those. For bigger projects, I mean, say projects like you have in the Athabasca Basin or elsewhere that are big billion-dollar lifts, perhaps, uh, they're going to need to access all forms of financing, debt, equity, royalties, and streams to success successfully bring those projects forward. So, you know, we're ideally situated in, in either of those cases to be a capital provider. Why should potential investors who are listening consider Uranium Royalty Corp today as one of their uranium exposure vehicles, Scott? What would you say to them? I think it does present, uh, and we've seen the popularity of, of this model in base and precious metals because it gives you that pure play exposure to a commodity, but but does so in a diversified manner. Um, you know, the, the, the biggest bang for your buck's obviously going to be investing in an individual uranium equity, and if they execute on their plans and the market uh, cooperates, um, you're going to see the biggest returns, the biggest risk return ratios are going to come from those pure equity investments. But there's risk in that. I mean, I I, uh, I hate to pick on anyone, but I, I look at the Salamanca mine in, uh, in Spain. I mean, that should have been a no-brainer. I mean, you have a country with 50% youth unemployment and company coming in to provide high-paying sustainable jobs in a rural part of Spain, and it doesn't get permitted to go forward, or at least not yet anyway, um, that's, that's a shock. And I think it just, it, it shows you how difficult it is to bring on a mine anywhere in the world today. So I diversified, you know, we realized we're going to have a big portfolio of, of projects and mines in, in our portfolio going forward. Some are going to exceed expectations. Some are going to disappoint. But on net, we hope that we've done our homework, that that uh, you know that that uh, you know we're providing uh, returns that that we think uh, uh, we'll get, but uh, that diversified pure play exposure is great. It provides something a little bit different than say the pure uh, commodity investment in uh, you know say a yellow cake or a UPC, which are I think every uranium investor needs to have those kind of investments in there. But that's going to have the least risk return pop, but probably the least downside risk. Uh, equities, pure equities being the highest risk return 
uh, ratio and then uh, royalty should be somewhere in between. But, you know, having said that, I look at uranium royalty companies in gold and copper, they're actually outperforming the pure equities in gold and copper uh, industry. So uh, it's a model that uh, really, uh, you know, I think is, is a beautiful model. Uh, and you can see it's been very uh, successful in other, other commodities. It's just very exciting to be able to take that to uranium and be the first, uh, first mover in the space. Scott, what is the best way for the audience to reach out to you and to the company? You know, our, our website, uraniumroyalty.com, is, uh, is a good source of information. Um, if you want to do real granular research into the portfolio, the prospectus from the IPO is, is still obviously very current uh, from December of last year. In there, you can really, really do the homework on, on the various projects and uh, see how the capital structures have evolved, you know, over the last three years. I'm also uh, available S. Melby at uraniumroyalty.com. I really welcome individual investors to, to reach out to me. Uh, happy to answer any questions. There's nothing I love talking more about than the uranium uh, markets, and especially right now with uh, pretty exciting uh, fundamentals uh, at, at play. I think our, our, our long wait and the patience that's really been required for the uranium investor is going to be rewarded in 2020. And I think URC is a, is a good way to be positioned to benefit from the coming bull market in uranium. All right, sir. Well, thanks for coming on, and uh, we look forward to chatting again soon. All right. Thank you very much, Andrew.